Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is celebrating 70 years of U.S.-Australia relations with Peter Jennings, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The two discuss the history and evolution of the ANZUS Treaty, how alliance dynamics play out in both Washington and Canberra, and the future of the alliance, including trilateral cooperation with Japan. Welcome to the 47th episode of the Asia Chessboard. We are meeting here in our studio on the 70th anniversary of ANZUS, our historic and consequential alliance with our closest ally, Australia, and are joined by one of the most influential strategic thinkers from Australia, Peter Jennings of the Australia Strategic Policy Institute. Peter, welcome. Mike, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. We'll talk about where we are with ANZUS in historical perspective. Your institute just put out a a short, readable, and, and very interesting collection of essays on that, where the alliance needs to go, where Australia is in its strategic thinking, its views of the U.S., and so forth. But we always start with you. So you grew up where in Australia? I grew up in a little uh, country town in uh, in New South Wales. Uh, did my secondary schooling uh, there for strange family reasons that no one can really recall why. I went to Tasmania to do my undergraduate degree and studied at the University of Tasmania for uh, for four years, uh, working primarily on uh, European medieval history, Mike, of all things. And um, I sort of found my way into uh, this this line of work in my final year of my undergraduate studies because I took a course on the strategic nuclear balance and then not long after that applied for a Fulbright scholarship. And I thought that I would have um, a chance of winning the scholarship if I uh, pitched a proposal to do a study on the US alliance network in the Asia Pacific region, which I then subsequently got the scholarship and went to uh, MIT for a period. And that really changed me, saved me from probably a very average career as a medieval historian and, and sort of pushed me into the world of um, international security. And then from an early, fairly unspectacular academic career, I discovered that you could actually make policy as well as write about it. And, and that sort of pushed me into the public service and advising governments here in Canberra. And uh, I've, I've now been a Canberra person for about um well, over 30 years, in fact, which uh, begins to make me a Canberra local. And I suspect that behind every strategic thinker on the Indo-Pacific, there's a lapsed historian of medieval Europe or a classicist somewhere. It gives you the realism perspective, right? Yeah, I think I think that's the right intellectual framework. Uh, I, I have friends who moved into strategy via uh, physics and uh, via philosophy, but I actually think history is the right uh, sort of starting point to to be a strategic thinker. This is something that I've written about, you've written about. I'm a historian who was forced to become a political scientist by fate, but the great strategic thinkers who come to mind, Mahon, Hedley Bull, Kissinger, John Quincy Adams, they were historians, first and foremost. And they understood contingency, they understood the linear aspect of history, and were able to keep a big picture in their head. 
Yeah, so yes, history is important. Political science gives you the discipline, but history is history is the right way to get your brain started for anyone listening. So this year is the 70th anniversary of ANZUS. You know, take us back to 1951. Why did we create this treaty? And is it doing today what John Foster Dulles or others in Canberra would have expected? Well, ANZUS was uh, an outcome really of Australia's neurosis about its own security at the end of the Second World War. You know, Australia had a shock during the course of the war, which was to discover after the uh, broad Japanese attack, that really the uh, Britain was no longer going to be able to be the, the underpinning power guaranteeing Australian security. And uh, as our then Prime Minister said, so we, uh, John Curtin said, we looked to the United States to be the ultimate guarantor of our security in the Battle of the Coral Sea. Uh, in 1943 really underpinned that that reality. Then you come to the end of the war and uh, the United States is looking to secure a peace treaty with Japan. We have a very uncomfortable situation arising on the Korean Peninsula. And it's at precisely the time that war begins to break out on the Korean Peninsula that Australia comes to the United States and says, hey, we, we would like to formalise our treaty relationship. Up to that time, I'm now talking 1950, the US was actually reluctant to formalise treaty relationships with its key partners in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. We also had the British still wanting to exert a role, wanting to be a formal treaty partner in the United States, not being interested in that. But things changed under the pressure of the North Korean invasion of the South and the heavy involvement of China with the North. And Australia was able to impress on the United States that now was the time to formalise a security commitment between ourselves, the New Zealanders and the US. And we were able to sort of squeak it through at probably a fairly narrow window of opportunity from the point of view about how the United States thought about its interests. That led, of course, to Australia committing, uh, in our terms, reasonably serious forces to the Korean conflict. And it really became the basis for our post-war thinking, our thinking over the last 70 years about how we conceive of our security interests, which is always best in a coalition of like-minded countries. And uh, that's how ANZUS came about. If you read the treaty, uh, Mike, it's only about 850 words. It's a page and a quarter. There's only um, a small uh, 11 active articles. In some respects, it's the absolute opposite of NATO. There is no standing headquarters. There is a, only a single ministerial level meeting every 12 months and then a bunch of staff effort to uh, to back that up. So it's, a, it's an alliance which is defined by an absence of machinery. But some people say that that is actually the key to its success. It's been immensely flexible. It's been able to serve the political and strategic purposes of at least Australia and the United States very effectively over that period of time. It's, it's redesigned itself to meet different threats and different strategic situations. And historically speaking, it's been remarkably successful that there are very few alliances which last 70 years. But Australia and the US, I think, are, as in fact, I would say closer now than we probably have been at any point since the uh, Second World War. When I was looking through the archives for my research, I was struck at how much the Australian side wanted out of this new alliance, including a joint combined command relationship basing and a more explicit defense commitment. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff, not the State Department, not Atchison, State wanted to give Australia what it wanted. But the Joint Chiefs said in the new containment strategy and the Korean War that 
And out of respect for Australian fighting capabilities, that Australia didn't need all that. Japan did, the Philippines did, but Australia should be expected to defend itself unless a major power or a nuclear power attacks it. And we didn't give Canberra what it wanted. And you read the archives back in those days, and there was some palpable fear of abandonment in Canberra, it seems to me. Do you think that's abated over time, or does the Australian public still time to time worry about the U.S.? It's always there under the surface, and, and there have been periods in the history of the alliance where that, that concern has been quite substantial. Uh, so in the early 1960s, when Indonesia was seeking to incorporate West Papua into uh, the Indonesian uh, Republic, we looked to the United States, to the Kennedy uh, administration to provide uh, support if we found ourselves in, in a conflict. The US was disinclined to support us on, on that occasion. Uh, you move forward to the late 1990s and uh, East Timor has just voted to Jakarta's surprise to remove itself from the Indonesian Republic and Australia um, uh, finds itself leading an international effort to stabilise East Timor as the Indonesian military withdrew. I was, I was very closely involved in that as a defence official at the time. Our government then went to the Clinton administration asking for American ground troops to support that international effort and, and uh, the Clinton administration was not interested in doing that. Yes, they provided intelligence support and logistics support and a marine detachment over the horizon, but they left it to Australia to, to manage its own affairs. So, you know, there have been occasions where we have wanted more from the alliance than the United States in an operational sense was prepared to provide. I don't think that's actually been a bad thing, Mike, because I think it has actually kept Australia focused on what it needs to do for its own defence. The risk of an overly successful alliance, if I can put it this way, is that you can drift, a small country can drift and, and not be prepared to invest in its security because we have the United States there to, to do it for us. And I think, uh, you know, part of the success of alliance management between the two countries has been to ensure that from an American perspective, Australia is always pulling its weight and from our perspective, that we're not drifting, we're not allowing ourselves to become complacent. And we have at times. I mean, I think the risk for Australia is always that we underinvest in our security. But uh, broadly speaking, the ANZUS relationship has managed a successful balance between trying to extract the best out of each of us for, for our mutual interests and not allowing either of us to sort of drift and, and become too complacent because the other power is going to, to look after our interests. I was an advisor to the Pentagon during the East Timor crisis and remember a secured video conference with the Australian chief of defense appealing to General Shalik Australia's American counterpart and evoking, as always happens, Americans serving under Monash at Hamel, the Coral Sea, Korea and Vietnam. And it was heartbreaking. But uh, General Shalik Australia said, no, we'll give you the intelligence, the strategic support, but we're not in a position to be, have boots on the ground. It was probably a little bit terrifying for the ADF at the time, but they pulled it off. Well, you know, I, I, I was running something called the East Timor Policy Unit, uh, which was flung together on virtually no notice to try to assemble the international coalition of forces that, that went in. And um, yes, there's no question that the, the default expectation was that we, we would have, you know, a battalion of Marines or something of that nature that would contribute to the force. 
I think the shock was more public, though, rather than inside mm-hmm. the defence organisation. You know, the, the big effort for us was to essentially drum up support from the wider Southeast Asian countries. I did a trip with our Vice Chief of Defence Force to the rest of Southeast Asia to say, what, what would you be prepared to provide in terms of ground troops? And there was actually something of a competition amongst Malaysia and the Philippines and Thailand to see who would come in with the largest consignment. So while the papers, the newspapers were in alarm over the the absence of American ground troops, we were perfectly happy getting those forces from Southeast Asia. What we needed from the US was the enablers. We, We needed the logistic support to get those countries trained up and ready to deploy and get them into theater. We needed intelligence. And the most important thing the United States, of course, provided was that it went around Jakarta saying to the Habibi government, look, don't get silly now about what you might actually be thinking you can do to damage the international force when it deploys. That was critical, though. I think if the Indonesians had felt that they could, you know, engage in more offensive action, Timor could have been a very different situation um, altogether. But so yes, it was a, it was a good reminder that you can't you can't just um, assume that even the closest of allies is going to turn up and do exactly what you want. Alliances are always negotiations, and um, we needed to work hard to get American support. We got what we needed, but it was also a reminder that we needed that America expected Australia to be more of a leader in the region than at times we felt comfortable doing. Uh, and, and I think we came out of Timor the better for that experience, frankly. And the ADF was transformed, creating a joint operational command and a completely new relationship with Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So it was a success. The flip side of the abandonment worry for any ally, you know, Thucydides would say, is fear of entrapment. And the Australian press and academic writing is full of stories of woe as Australia is pulled into this conflict and that conflict by, you know, the Americans. In my experience in government, though, Australia's influence on American strategic thinking is significant. And, you know, you go back to Australia's influence on the San Francisco settlement itself, the peace treaty with Japan, the alliances, Australia had a veto in effect and shaped that. Or the escalation of Vietnam, historians have shown quite clearly that Menzies and others were alarmed in 1964-65 and were pushing the U.S. to get into Vietnam. Not that the outcome is Australia's fault, but very influential. And when I was in the White House, Australia was in at the pointy end of the spear in Afghanistan, Iraq, SAS, F-18s, right at the beginning. And that gave a unique, paralleled only by the Brits, unique insight into American planning, American thinking, and also politically, I felt, made Australian support for the U.S. indispensable. So Australia could ask for and got quite a bit. The public doesn't see because one of the ways we run this alliance is to not air all our dirty laundry. What do you think now is sort of the influence of Canberra on U.S. strategy? It's, it, I think it's considerable, but in Canberra, do people realize how much influence Australia has per capita compared to other countries in the region, or do people still worry about entrapment or being ignored? Well, Mike, you had um, in Canberra the last um, U.S. ambassador of the Trump administration, Arthur B. Culverhouse, used to say that he felt that uh, sort of in some respects America had a higher regard for Australia's capabilities than we did ourselves. And I still think that's true. I, I tend to think we discount our effectiveness and perhaps actually don't use our effectiveness in Washington as much 
or as ably as, as we should. Having said that, I'm, I'm also very conscious that, you know, the truth of the matter is Australians will always think more about the shape and the purpose of the ANZUS Alliance than the United States will. The power relativities are such that, you know, this is a sort of existentially central relationship for us, perhaps less so for the United States. And so we invest much more effort into it, uh, you know, the best and the brightest of our policy establishment. And the outcome of that is that Australia, I think, has a disproportionate ability to shape what that alliance looks like to define the activities that take place under it, because it's that much more central to, to our thinking. An example of that was uh, when, I, when I was in the Defence Department as the Deputy Secretary for Strategy in, in the um, late 20-teens, the first decade of the 20th century, the, the, the US under Obama was going through a forced posture review. And uh, we persuaded the United States that let, let Australia be a part of that. You know, if you're, if you're looking at your forced posture internationally, surely you're going to have to let your allies become sort of a close discussant in that position, which was something that I think was quite unique to, to how the Pentagon thought about it. And, and out of that emerged the decision to rotate, as, as we describe it, a detachment of US Marines out of northern Australia, which Barack Obama announced here with uh, then Prime Minister Julia Gillard in, in 2011. That would never have happened had America been left to its own devices, if I can put it that way, to, uh, to shape that false posture outcome. So small allies can have disproportionate impact, I think, when it comes to shaping DC policy. Now, now you ask, how is that playing out today? Well, I think there is a continued Australian neurosis, both under the Trump administration and, and under the Biden administration, about the degree and seriousness of American commitment to security in the Asia-Pacific region. And really the core Australian strategic interest is to do whatever we can to ensure that um, the consistency and strength and credibility of America's presence in the Asia-Pacific remains. This week in Washington, D.C., we'll have the annual Osman meeting of our foreign and defence ministers, your Secretary of State and Secretary of Defence. And I, I would say to you, Mike, that uh, whatever, whatever comes out of that meeting, it will all, from an Australian perspective, be designed to strengthen the commitment of America to um, Asia-Pacific security. And I think what that will mean is we'll see a raft of new forms of security cooperation between us and the United States because our contribution to that American credibility is to make ourselves the best ally for the United States to want to actually cooperate with. So, you know, again, Australia will be bending its aims towards that particular objective. Whether we're always successful, I think that's a different point. Whether there are occasions where we refrain from having the right conversations that we should be having with the US because it all looks a bit too difficult, you know, they're, they're things we could talk about. Generally speaking, the Australian effort is all about trying to keep the US engaged, and we think the best way to do that is to be the best, most credible ally that, that we can be. You have a great line in the report, which riffs off of that famous remark about NATO. It's designed to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And you have a line in the report that ANZUS's purpose on its 70th birthday is to keep the U.S. in, keep Japan up, and to compete against, cooperate with, and confound China. That should be on your business card, Peter. That's brilliant. What does that look like? ANZUS today, well, ANZUS 70 years ago was focused on the Indo-Pacific. We didn't call it then, but the, the Pacific and diggers and GIs fought side by side in Korea and Vietnam. But after Vietnam, of course, 
all our experience in combat together, that the high end, which drove our alliance in many ways, was the Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan. But the last 10, 15 years, and with increasing intensity, it's now about uh, what you just described, keeping Japan up, the Americans in, and cooperating with, competing with, and confounding China. So it's a much more comprehensive agenda, isn't it? It's more than just intelligence and defense, as you point out. How would you describe the, the range of uh, ANZUS activities today? ANZUS has become a, a strategic relationship, not simply a military-to-military or intelligence agency-to-intelligence agency relationship. Those things are important, but I think if you look at how the alliance is growing these days, it's now looking at things like um, the security of uh, supply chains. It's looking at what we can jointly do together in defence industry. It's working even in a whole range of domestic security areas to do things like strengthen our societies from being undermined by covert foreign influencing. Cyber, of course, has opened up a whole new range of um, activities, which in the Australian and American context came from, you know, very, very firm, deep connections in the signals intelligence world, but now move out across the whole of our, our economies and societies in, in quite profound ways. So I think what we've seen is that the alliance relationship is moving from primarily a defence grouping to something which now has you know, a much broader set of foundations across how we think about national security. And that makes it more complex because it's not just a bunch of people that know each other very well in the Pentagon and, and a few intelligence agencies. There's a much wider range of activities across government that, that has to be considered. You know, the other point I'd make is, as I said earlier, sort of existentially important for, for Australia. I, I think also increasingly important for the United States. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a world where America expects its friends and allies to do more for their own security, that means to say that America's security interests have to be addressed by friends and allies doing things that the United States wants. And... Um, I think that means that ANZUS is probably lifting in terms of American priority compared to how it might have been in, uh, in some past decades. I think another area where it's emerging very quickly and, and uh, be interesting to see how further this develops, Mike, is, is uh, our trilateral cooperation with Japan has just taken off immensely quickly in the last uh, five, 10 years or so. After a lot of foundation building, you know, now we start to have, I think, a very effective strategic relationship or an alliance really in all but name emerging between those three countries. And I think the Australia-Japan-US trilateral relationship doesn't really have a title. That's going to become one of the most powerful factors for promoting the interests of Western democracies in the Indo-Pacific region in coming years. You flirt with a title in your report, you call it Jensus, mm. right, with, with Japan. But look, the agenda you just described, we are almost perfectly aligned with both Japan and Australia, more so than with our European allies, more so than with Britain, Great Britain, you know, our special relationship on trade, on technology, on decoupling, on defense, on the quad, on regional architecture. We could not be closer we could be closer, of course, but we have no allies we are closer to than Japan and Australia on this whole range of issues that emanate from uh, strategic competition from China. And it was striking to me when Abe was pushing his defense reforms and reinterpretation of the Japanese constitution to allow collective self-defense. In the diet debate, he would mention or his cabinet would mention that this is necessary to help the United States 
or Australia. Mm. And putting Australia out there with the Japanese public actually helped the debate. It made this uh, move towards collective self-defense more attractive, not less. So it's really, really interesting to see how this relationship has unfolded. The first planes after the March uh, 2011 earthquake into the Sendai airport, which Marines and Air Force and Japanese uh, defense forces rebuilt. The first plane to land was Australian with supplies. There's a depth to this trilateral relationship a lot of people don't see. And it's it's gratifying, frankly. That's right. The moment of the, the triple crisis in Australia's early involvement was one of those sort of threshold points where I think the Japanese did begin to see it very differently. And another one I'd point to was um, a couple of years ago now uh, when uh, Prime Minister Abe visited Australia but went to Darwin. And um, a lot of Australians saw this as being sort of a ruling of a line on the ledger after the Japanese attack on, on yep. Darwin in, in 1942. And yes, it was that, and that was an important step that uh, Mr Rave took. But I think more significantly, it was also an expression of Japan's sort of strategic interest in a stable Australia today. And in fact, a, a strong sense of Japanese strategic interest in Darwin uh, as, as a sort of a one point of, um, of Abe's diamond, security diamond, you may yeah. recall, was one of the, the phrases that he used. So I think Abe has been actually very important personally in, in driving the closeness of that relationship, but it's now at a point where I think it will survive any particular change of government in any of our three countries. It was Abe and, and John Howard in Abe's first term, and then Abe and Tony Abbott. And there was some griping from the Australian Labour Party about that relationship in some quarters. I don't see it anymore. It seems to me that support for ANZUS and for the relationship with Japan have quite broad support within Australian politics. Is that how you see it? Yes, I would agree. Uh, it's always difficult for oppositions to think of opposing things to say about Australian foreign and security policy. Generally speaking, Labor in opposition wants to make itself look strong on national security, and it does that by ensuring that there's virtually no visible difference between itself and the government on key issues. So there's very strong Australian support for the alliance relationship. It was a Labor government which was um, uh, able to announce the arrival of the US Marine rotations into the north of the country. And I think that was actually accidental in a sense, but important that Labor can say that it's the owner of that expansion of the alliance relationship. Typically, what oppositions will do is complain about the implementation of policy and how they would do it better and smarter and more cleverly, and they wouldn't allow cost overruns on defence equipment projects and those sorts of things. But when it comes to the basics, we are really fortunate in Australia in a way that a number of other countries have not been fortunate, New Zealand, Canada, to have a strong bipartisan approach on the fundamentals of our defence and alliance policies. And so if we do have a change of government in Australia early next year, when, when our federal election is most likely, I, I don't think it's going to change any of the key policy settings concerning the alliance, relations with Japan, the fundamental problems that we have with China. You may find some language changing, but broadly the key policy settings will remain in place. You probably saw when CSIS last year surveyed the American public and thought leaders about China. We asked how much risk we should take to defend key allies against Chinese attack, with 10 being significant risk and one being no risk. And all, all our allies and partners did well, but Australia scored an almost perfect 10. 
in terms of how much risk Americans, not just defense experts, leaders in universities, leaders of labor unions, thought we should risk to defend Australia. So it's, it's strong and mutual. You mentioned New Zealand. So, uh, of course, that's the NZ in ANZUS. How would you describe where we are with New Zealand and where we should be? Well, there's, there's certainly no prospect of a return to a close trilateral ANZUS relationship where New Zealand has a seat at the table of those annual meetings that, that I talked about. And, you know, ANZUS had its own existential moment in, in the 1980s when New Zealand elected a Labor government with very strong anti-nuclear policies, which ultimately led to the US suspending its um, security obligations towards New Zealand after the David Longy government refused port access to an American warship in 1984. You know, at the time, I actually wrote my master's thesis about that particular issue. At the time, it was seen to be, you know, something of a disaster in terms of the US alliance situation in, in the Pacific. But actually, a number of positives came from it. One was that the Labor government in Australia redesigned its approach towards the alliance and really killed off any prospect that it could go down the track that the New Zealand Labor Party went down with its strong anti-nuclear policies. So we, we had a strengthening of the bilateral relationship. Second thing was Australia and the United States have always been more simpatico uh, in terms of how we think collectively about defence and security interests. New Zealand always tended to have a more equivocal approach they just thought about their security differently, not surprisingly, because their geography is, is very different. Uh, as a previous Australian foreign minister once said, they don't have the hot breath of Asia breathing on their neck in the way that uh, Australia does. And so what, what we got from New Zealand was a situation where it was comfortable with its foreign and defence policy settings after the breakup of the ANZUS relationship. Uh, New Zealand has always continued to spend less on defence than Australia does quite significantly so we would like them to spend more. But broadly speaking, they are a country which is aligned in terms of values. They did provide, in their terms, significant forces to the East Timor stabilisation operation. They provided uh, useful and uh, forces that did valuable work in, in Afghanistan. So New Zealand has played, I think, an important role for itself, particularly in the, in the Pacific as a, as a stabilising good quality power with the right values and the right approaches. But it does not wish to be as close of an ally to the United States as, as Australia is. And so I think we, we're kind of just going to be in that situation for, for the future where the United States describes New Zealand as a very, very good friend, but not an ally. And um, the United States describes Australia as an exceptionally strong ally. And I think that, that kind of suits all of the three players at, at the moment. Of course, New Zealand's in five eyes, so the intelligence side has survived. When the U.S. cut New Zealand off from the benefits of the alliance because they refused to accept, it's a more complicated story than I'm telling, but as you know, refused to accept the American guarantee about uh, neither declaring or denying whether there's nuclear power on U.S. ships. And uh, the U.S. couldn't give New Zealand that out because if they did, Japan would ask for it, which was much more important strategically. And at the time, in the 80s, we in Washington, I was a student, but Washington was worried about um, the Australian Labor Party. But as you point out, the Australian Labor Party is solid now. And Japan is solid. We don't have to worry about the demonstration effect. So what I think I hear you saying is the main reason New Zealand's not back in the alliance is because New Zealand's ambivalent. 
and the New Zealand political leadership is somewhat ambivalent. Is that fair? Yes, that's right. I, I, I mean, there was a period of uh, during the, the 90s, perhaps the first decade of the new century, where there was some thought about would the centre-right of New Zealand politics want to get back into a closer alliance relationship with the United States? And, and um, frankly, the answer was no. There was also an Australian concern about that because I think our view was if New Zealand is allowed to have a relatively easy ride back to the alliance table, then what does that say about the rate of effort that an ally has to expend in order to be seen to be a credible ally in Washington, D.C.? We frankly have got more out of the bilateral security relationship with New Zealand, not there. And, uh, you know, that has enabled Australia to plan its own strategic course in ways that suit the Australian population that New Zealand would probably have put a break on had we had to do this as a trilateral partnership. You know, from the Australian perspective now, we would like to see New Zealand be more front-footed in dealing with China, less coded in the sorts of language they use to talk about resisting Chinese pressure. New Zealand, for its part, I think, regards Australia as being a bit too heavy-handed in some of the language we use about the bilateral relationship with China. But mostly we get value from each other and we get benefit from the fact that we are two different countries without having to sort of broker a consensus on what our shared foreign and strategic policy goals should be. So that's how I see it. If there was a discussion today or, or at the Osman meeting coming up in, in Washington, D.C. about should New Zealand be brought back, I, I don't think either Australia or the United States would particularly want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there was an option to bring in Japan rather than New Zealand, I think that would be a far more constructive thing to do, even though I don't think that's going to happen either, actually, Mike. Um, so we're just at a place where the sort of alliance frameworks sort of suit each of the existing players. But I think it's still important. New Zealand still has an important international voice and it's still important for Australia and the United States to keep working away at them so that they don't just sort of drift off into some sort of non-aligned kind of way of thinking about the world. But broadly speaking, you know, they are where they need to be and I think they're doing what we, Australia, would want them to do. So as the US and Australia refocus on the Indo-Pacific and compete across a whole range of domains military, trade, technology. It's a very large agenda, but I just want to get a lightning round, get a quick reaction from you to some of the issues that I think are going to be most interesting. One is strike capability. Australia's defense forces are moving faster than Japan or Korea, which are also interested towards having an indigenous capability for strike. I assume LRASM or some kind of air-launched or sea-launched missile, surface-to-surface missile. What does that tell us about Australia's defense thinking and threat assessment? It tells us that the threat assessment is certainly much, much greater now about short-term risk. We used to operate according to a planning assumption that said we'd have a decade of notice if a country was going to actually develop malign intent against Australia. That now has formally been abandoned as a planning assumption. And I think the view is that we're in a world where threats to Australian interests could manifest themselves very, very quickly. Um, Then I think the next concern we have is that the Australian Defence Force, which is probably in the best shape it's been in, certainly in my professional lifetime, still suffers from being, I think, undergunned in terms of its capacity to put high explosive onto target. We're a small force with a small number of exquisitely capable platforms and weapon systems, 
but now the challenge is, frankly, to be able to bring you know more hitting power more quickly across dispersed, cheaper platforms. And I think we have come to the view that the, the best way to do that is to work with the United States to produce a domestic missile production capability here in Australia. And there's, there's two benefits from that. There's the obvious benefit for uh, Australia's defence force, but there's a, there is a benefit for the United States, which I think needs to diversify its own sources of production. You know, if you do find yourself in a conflict, you're never going to have enough missiles and you need to have access to missiles in the theatres that you're going to operate in. So being able to do things, you know, in and with Australia, I think is going to be an important part of an American strategy of dispersal as well. The challenge here, Mike, is delivering this not in 10 years' time, but, you know, as quickly as we possibly can and making sure that we don't become a, a casualty of a sort of a congressional view which says that, well, missile production must remain in my congressional district. We can't see a US dollar being spent, for example, to produce with Australia uh, some sort of joint uh, capability. And I think the only way we'll be able to cut through that type of argument over turf will be if our foreign and defence ministers at Osman and then the prime minister who will be visiting a few weeks after the Osman meeting when he has his first face-to-face meeting with Joe Biden is able to get that top-level American political agreement to say, yes, this is a priority for both our countries and we need to pursue this as fast as we possibly can. Another one that will be a focus in this Osman, future Osmans, is what to do about Chinese economic coercion. Australia is under an enormously intense uh, Chinese economic embargo and is not buckling or backing down. And there's a lot of thought in Washington and elsewhere about whether a collective security system can be developed to provide mutual support when democracies are embargoed in this way. But it turns out to be much more complicated legally and economically and diplomatically than people think. There was even some ambivalence, I think, within Canberra about the U.S. playing any role at all at first, since Canberra wanted to be managing the relationship with China on its own. So uh, your institute has done a lot of thinking about this. Where do you think this uh, particular policy issue is going to go? I think what's happening in Australia is actually working in the sort of medium to long term well from the point of view of our economic interests, uh, and that is Chinese bad behaviour is forcing our businesses to diversify their markets. We had allowed ourselves to become way too dependent on China as a single market for um, everything from uh, Australian commodities to foodstuffs to tourism to higher education. And frankly, because of China's bad behaviour, the business community has recalibrated their risk assessments and they're they're now generating markets in different economies. That's a, a real positive for us. It would be nice if the democracies could at least agree a shared approach to this in such a way that, you know, when the loss of an Australian market for wine, for example, is sort of eagerly jumped on by American wine producers to say, okay, well, now we can take advantage of that gap in the Chinese market. And I say that because um, although Australia is the poster boy of uh, Chinese coercion at the moment, this is a strategy which they are applying globally whenever they find a country which is not exceeding to uh, subordinate themselves to China's interests more, more broadly. And then finally, Mike, I think, you know, there is a missing dimension that's still in American policy and has been for a number of administrations now, 
about how America wants to pursue its own interests in in the trade and economic agenda in in the Indo-Pacific region. And that is sort of the second part of American power, which I think the administration needs to work on to be able to create opportunities for closer trade and economic integration on the part of the democracies. Ultimately, this is going to require, I believe, a further degree of separation between the US and the Chinese economy. That's going to be immensely painful for large parts of the American business sector. But I think it's where China's policies are now driving the world. This is not going to lead to complete disengagement, but it is going to lead to a sort of selective disengagement in sectors of the US economy. I think that's inevitable, Mike. I can't I can't find a way to um, imagine how that could be any different, at least for as long as Xi Jinping is in power. We have a very, very intense agenda in front of us as allies. And uh, Peter Jennings, thanks for joining me to uh, celebrate our 70th birthday, not yours and mine, of course, the Alliance. And uh, congratulations on all the success with ASPE. And, you know, a different turn in your career, you would have been spending the last 30 minutes talking about French medieval literature, and this is much more fun. And Thanks to Napa Valley and the McLaren Valley, the wine's also better now too. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Um, I'm glad I, I had that sort of sliding doors moment in my career where I abandoned English medieval agricultural history and uh, moved into this. It's been a great career experience. And um, here's to the next um, 70 years of Alliance cooperation. Here, here. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia Program page.